Frederick Buechner is one of my favorite theological authors. He's a retired Presbyterian pastor, and his work really makes you think. Now, in one of his books, there is a fictional Pastor Beb, although I'm pretty sure Pastor Beb is actually a real pastor. It's just the name was changed to protect the innocent or the guilty, depending on how you see it. Anyway, in this book, as Pastor Beb is rambling about the state of relationships, here's the quote. If there's one thing that makes me want to puke, it's a friendly divorce. If it's got to be, give me a divorce that's hateful. If you're just friends, stay put. So what if it's not all moonlight and roses? What is? Stay put because if you don't, you'll spend the rest of your life looking to find each other in the face of strangers. I love that. You'll spend the rest of your life looking to find each other in the face of strangers. This is one of those Sundays that I wish I had a guest preacher. Wait a minute. I actually do. I know it looks like I'm here at Our Savior preaching, but if all went well, I'm in Illinois meeting my new baby granddaughter for the very first time. In fact, it'll be the first Sunday that I've actually had off in two years, which is why I am so thankful that uh, Chaplain Joel was able to fill in for me. Anyway, this is one of those topics that is bound to raise the hackles of several different groups for several different reasons. And I didn't pick this Sunday to be gone. It just happened. Uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. An elevator speech is a well-thought-out talk that can only last as long as it takes to get from the fifth floor to the lobby or vice versa. You have to be all in because you're not going to get this chance again. And so divorce is one of those subjects a lot of people have elevator speeches on. In other words, they know exactly how they feel, and they'll usually throw in a Bible verse or two in order to make sure you get their point. All right. First rule for lawyers, never ask a question you don't know the answer to. And by that we mean never ask someone a question that you don't know how they are going to answer it. Because if you don't know how they're going to answer it, you're liable to get yourself in trouble. We've all been there. We said something and we suddenly realized the other person reacted far louder and far angrier than we thought they would. And we realized we hit a hot button. Or Somebody responded, and we're not sure whether they're fur or again it, and so now we're kind of caught because we don't know which direction to go. You know, most of us have a reason to ask the questions we do. We're looking for somebody to agree with us, validate us, or we wish to validate someone else who shares our opinion. In other words, we're like, now I know that you share this opinion. You and I can have a deeper discussion on it. But there are people in the world who just love to argue. It's not about agreeing or disagreeing. It's just they want to argue. The book of Proverbs, by the way, has 45 different sayings about these folks. And it's not nice. Now, the Pharisees are the kind of people those 45 Proverbs are talking about. So they walk up to Jesus. So, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And, of course, they don't care what the Roman law says. The law they're referring to is the law of Moses, the Torah. Now, like all good lawyers, they already know the answer. At least they think they do. For hundreds of years, a man could divorce his wife if she was unfaithful, could not bear children, or had failed him. And by the way, that whole failure, it was a very broad term. These leaders, and we need to highlight, underline, and put a big arrow pointing just at them, they treat women more like property. There were a few who had risen above that, but for the most part, this group was a men's club around the church, and the church and the world was poor for it. The Pharisees asked this particular question to test Jesus. They are looking to trap him, discredit him, 
prove that they are actually better and more faithful and certainly more holy than he is. Now, with the question asked, everybody in the men's club starts doing the bobblehead, yes, yes. This is absolutely okay. Everyone that is, except Jesus. When the Pharisees ask, is it lawful? They're referring to the codified law of Moses that had been interpreted by the great rabbis over the centuries. Now, some of these rabbis, by the way, were more accepted than others. And the Pharisees were split into different groups based upon which rabbi they happened to follow. But because they were united against Jesus, they put their differences aside and came as a, well, a unified front to say, hey, Jesus, is it okay if I divorce my wife? When most of us think about the law, it's rules and regulations. It's somebody screaming, now don't do that. And they always wag their finger at us. But the law is more than that. It cannot just be a random list of arbitrary things that somebody decided, keyword somebody decided, were, well, we're wrong. There must be compelling and necessary reasons for those laws to exist. Now, it's possible for a dictator or an egomaniac to simply say, don't do that because I said so. And if they've got enough power and money, they can make it so. But that doesn't make it good and doesn't make it reasonable. Now, there are two kinds of laws. The way things are and the way things should be. It's reality versus hope. When you see a sign that says you must wear a mask or the speed limit is 55 miles an hour, it's because someone says that if you follow those rules, it will help protect you and your neighbor. Now, if you follow this law, things are going to be the way they were supposed to be. It's that hope thing. Now, it is possible you will never know if it's true or not, but most of us are willing to take the chance because it gives us hope that things actually will get better. But since this type of law requires all of us to follow it, not just some of us, something that isn't going to happen because we're human, well, eventually hope, it, hope fades into despair. The second kind of law is about the way things are. When you see a sign that says, watch out for falling rocks, well, whether you believe it or not, whether you agree with it or not, if you stand in that spot long enough, you'll find out it's true. And hopefully you live long enough to tell somebody else it's true. Now, God's laws tell us what it takes to be truly human by God's standards, not ours. And more often than not, these laws wind up showing us just how bad we are at being, well, human. There is a verse from 1 John. Now, this is the book that we normally love to love because who doesn't love love? But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, there is a very unloving verse. Well, at least unloving because well, it's not all happy, clappy, and wonderful and squishy. It says, whoever does not love abides in death, or as some translations say, remains dead. In this verse, we discover the two kinds of laws are really the same, at least when it comes to God. You see, the rock falling off the cliff and smashing you, well, that may come a lot quicker, but the death that comes from not loving God or our neighbor will come and kill us just as dead as that rock falling off the cliff, even if we have to wait a little bit longer for it. Now, the law exists to convict us. But not just so we feel bad or, or spend our life wallowing in guilt. God's law isn't about ruining our day in life, unless that's the only way that God finds that he can get our attention. And this is why we can't just listen to the bobblehead Pharisees' questions, decide we agree, and then get back to watching whatever we're watching on TV. You see, even if we must relegate the question to the back of our minds and process the question while we're going about whatever it is that we're going about, we cannot stop until we have not only heard the question, but also listened to what Jesus has to say. 
we've gotten way too comfortable letting other people think for us, decide for us. It's so easy to say, hey Siri, hey Google, what did Jesus mean when he said? And we actually don't bother to ask who it was that told Siri and Google to tell us whatever Siri and Google told, told us. See, when it comes to God's law, the majority, no matter how holy and righteous they claim to be, they can't win, nor are they necessarily right. It's not the law that matters. It is the person the law was meant to protect or save or love that truly matters. And that's where God's heart always is coming from. So here's something that I'd like you to think about. Something, by the way, that you've got to decide for yourself. Can't ask Siri, can't ask Google. You see, are you a better person? And is the world a better place? Because you try to obey the law, even if you have to bend and wiggle it a little bit because it's just too rigid for you. Or are you a better person and is the world a better place because you can't obey the law, at least the unaltered, unwiggled, unbent law, and therefore have come to rely on grace and forgiveness, and in turn are willing to learn to love and forgive others because you know that they're no better off in the ability to follow the law than you are. In Luke 6, Jesus challenges the disciples by saying, you know, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Because even sinners do that. St. Paul says in Galatians 2, any good that I do is not me doing it, but it's Christ who's living and working in and through me. If we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not our work, it's the gift from God so that nobody can boast about it, our life is not about following the law. It's about coming to a place where we realize why God had to speak all those laws into place in the first place. You see, he didn't do it to control us or make us feel guilty. He did it to primarily protect us from ourselves. And when we come to that place where we realize who we are and who he is, we learn to ask him to help us deal with whatever it is inside of us that causes us to rebel against him, against his laws, and to be honest, against pretty much everything else. And that changes the question. Rather than deal with the Pharisees' question about divorce and whether it's legal or illegal, because that will just get us running in circles with one rabbi saying this and another rabbi saying that, we need to ask why those Pharisees asked that particular question. Because to be honest, it has nothing to do with divorce or marriage or Moses. When Jesus responds, and by the way, the Greek shows this is an emphatic response, his message was simple. It's not the law that matters. We put way too much authority into words and ink. Jesus said, Moses let you do that because you wouldn't take no for an answer, but that never made it right. Let's talk, he says, about what God did way back in Genesis when he says the two shall become one flesh. See, Jesus does not answer the question asked because it would not lead the crowd where it needed to go, which is into the presence of God. Jesus isn't just talking with or to the Pharisees. There are people around who are listening, and we gotta take that into account. Because if he was only talking to the Pharisees and only the Pharisees were going to hear it, it'd be a whole different matter. And I guarantee he would have answered it differently. Oh, the answer would have been the same, but how he answered you know, probably wouldn't have been so polite. See, there are people who are listening whose hearts are yearning for the truth, who want and need hope. And Jesus must craft an answer that lets the Pharisees know that he is on to their little game, but also leads the crowd straight into the presence of a loving, merciful God who understands that a lot of their relationships are broken and he wants to love them through it. 
If your answer leaves someone outside the possibility of God's mercy and grace, then you are no better off than the one who asked the question in the first place. If you are speaking law for no other reason than to condemn with no hope of any other outcome, then your heart has nothing of love in it. Jesus' answer leaves the audience looking in a window at grace, at mercy, at peace, at hope, at love. And he points to an unlocked door that leads to those treasures of God. Yeah, it's an answer of grace. Oh, and by the way, Jesus has got his nail-scarred hands on the doorknob, opening it so they can come through. You see, only God has the right and the ability to pronounce final and everlasting judgment because He alone knows what the hearts and souls are, which ones are so empty and void of love that they have made a choice not to be loved. That's going back to that whole thing of whoever does not love remains dead. See, for us, as long as we are living and have a voice and we know there are those who are literally dying to know the truth, we must always point to that unlocked door that leads from the law to the gospel. That door that Jesus has got his hand on, opening and saying, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus answers their question with a question. So what did Moses command you? Now, important note, Jesus didn't say, What did God command you? But what did Moses command you? And the Pharisees responded, Well, he said it was okay. As long as we write up a document making it nice and legal, then we can send her away. Now think about that for a second. Do you see why the law often needs to be spoken out loud so that everybody hears what you're saying? Can you imagine that austere and self-righteous group in their finest robes and jewelry, seated according to who had the most prestige and power down to the one who was the least? And they turn and they say, he said we're good as long as we fill out the paperwork correctly. Then it's okay to send her away. No one wept. No one noted the loss of one of God's most treasured and first gifts to us. No one even questioned how this could be legal, let alone right. It was spoken and everyone did the bobblehead. Everyone, that is, except Jesus. Jesus said, Moses let you do this because you demanded it. But that doesn't make it right. And then Jesus quotes the verse in Genesis that Moses had written down. And God said, the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus leaves them with an image of the only way two people who had become one could ever be separated. And it involves a tearing and a pain and a hurt and a loss and an emptiness, not just for them, but anyone and everyone who loves them. And no amount of paperwork could ever make that right. The opening Beekner quote, If there's one thing that makes me want to puke, it's a friendly divorce. If it's got to be, give me a divorce that's hateful. Because with your friends, stay put. So what if it's not all moonlight and roses? What is? Stay put because if you don't, you'll spend the rest of your life looking to find each other in the face of strangers. Now, lest we think Jesus responded this way because he was having a bad day or because one of the Pharisees gave him stink eye and it riled him up a little bit, in the next verse where Jesus makes it clear being smart and holy don't mean much with God, at least when it comes to being saved, he said, Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child is never going to enter it. Jesus says the only way to receive the kingdom of God is as a gift. It's not about us being perfect or trying to be perfect, but about our loss and inability to save ourselves that then smothers us and covers us in grace. And here is where the whole thing gets wrapped up with a nice red bow on top. Everything we do as individual believers and as a congregation is not about us being smarter, holier, better, or greater than everybody else. We have all had broken relationships, whether it was a marriage, parents or children, or a no longer best friend, or a business partner, or even a neighbor. See, could we have saved the relationship 
Well, the Pharisees say, you know what, fill out the necessary paperwork, make sure it's proper, then send them away and it's all legal, and you don't have to think about it ever again. But in this case, legal doesn't mean much. See, no matter how legal it is, we can't forget. And it keeps hurting long after the paperwork is filed, whether it's done right or not. There must be something more. And Jesus says there is. What matters is us getting on with our lives and getting them on with their lives. And for that to happen, there has to be grace and forgiveness, not just properly filled out paperwork. The challenge of the gospel is to keep it ever before us, to never let anyone extinguish it, cover it, cover it, bury it, or void it just by saying, don't worry, it's all legit. No, the truth is we don't always get it right. In fact, we rarely, if ever, get it right. And when we're surrounded by a whole bunch of other people who also don't get it right, well, you can see how we got into the mess that we're in. We have a God who hears the questions we ask, but then reaches deeper into our hearts and souls to find out what we're really asking and why we're really asking it and what we really need to hear. And then he holds out the gospel, not just for us to hear, but for us to experience. You see, this text really isn't about marriage or human relationships. It's about so much more, including God and us, the now and the forever. You see, we can write all sorts of things down on paper. We can sign our name to it, making it all perfectly legal. But that's not the point, and never has been. Uh, just because our life isn't what we thought it should be or wanted it to be, is that really a good enough reason for us to, as Pastor Bebb said, spend the rest of our lives looking to find each other, whether that each other, by the way, is one another, or whether it's God in the faces of strangers. We were created to be in relationships, even though because of sin they get broken and cause pain. And here the one who doesn't just talk about love, but who is love, calls us to himself and he says, look, hold on to me and hold on to the ones that you love. Don't give up because it will be worth it. One day, I promise you, it will all be worth it. See, I'm not going to give up on you, he says. So don't give up on me and don't give up on one another. You're saved by grace. Use some of that grace on one another. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.